In Luke 8, we have uh, the, the last two of four miracles that Jesus did. Uh, the chapter's been a long chapter. It's took us about, what, four weeks? And we'll, we'll take a break. We're going to do something different for a week or two after this. But uh, what, what has happened in, in Luke 8 is we've had the parable of the sower, and then we've had four miracles. Uh, but, as we'll see a wee bit later, they're maybe not just miracles. They're maybe parables as well as miracles. Um, we had Jesus, first of all, uh, stilling the storm. We had him in the storm. That was two weeks ago, and he told the sea what to do. Now, you have to... This is where today is where a lot of these things will come together. A lot of these pictures, ideally you want to do all four of these miracles at once, but it would take about two hours and none of you want that. But you, all, all of it sort of comes together and it all actually meets in the last few chapters of Isaiah. Wonderfully, all this stuff that Jesus is doing. But first of all, two weeks ago, he was in the storm and he told the sea what to do. And then last week, it was the storm within. It was the man possessed by the legion of demons that were tormenting him. And Jesus frees him, delivers him, and drives the enemy army back into the chaotic sea from which it had come. And these are stories that evoke the Exodus, because in the Exodus, God told the sea what to do. And in the Exodus, God drowned the enemy army in the sea. And whenever Isaiah wrote his book about 700 years before Jesus, the people were not in Egypt. They were in Babylon and they were in exile, separated from the presence of God in the temple, separated from their land, exiled to a foreign land. And Isaiah writes of of a hope of someone who will come, of God himself coming and he asks, where is he in Isaiah 63, 11, Where is he who brought them through the sea? This is two weeks ago with the shepherd of his flock. Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain everlasting renown and lead them through the depths? So Isaiah, towards the end of his book in 63, is crying out, where is the God who commands the sea what to do? who's going to deliver people from the exile that they're living in, from the sin and the, the, the oppression that they are under. And then later on in Isaiah 65, um, we read about one who sits among the graves, spends their nights keeping vigil, eating the flesh of pigs, and, and the message at the end is keep away. This is what we saw last week. The guy who lived in the tombs, and, and lived among the, 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 the death and, and the pigs that were... This is the only place in the Bible where these things are together, apart from in Luke. Isaiah, again, is, is crying out to God. And the message that the people send is keep away. And that's what we heard last week. Whenever the man was delivered and the, the demons came out of him, the local people freaked out and they said to Jesus, go away, don't come near us, leave. And he did. So we're seeing these themes from Isaiah being pulled out as these stories come out. Now today we've got two stories and they're woven together. You just cannot separate these. Two stories about two daughters. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the whole text as we go along. Rather than reading it all now, I'm going to read little bits and just work through as we, as we go along. So we're in Luke 8, we're in, chapter, or in verse 40, and we're going to go to verse 56 today. Now, when Jesus returned, so he's come back across the lake again from the Decapolis where he was last week. 
When Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. So Jesus has come back across the sea and he's probably in Capernaum, which was his base of operation. Peter's house in Capernaum was, was probably the base, the HQ for Jesus and the 12. And in that town, there's a synagogue and the leader is a guy called Jairus. I feel sorry for Jairus for two reasons. One reason is that people in Northern Ireland keep calling him Jairus. You notice this? There's a whole generation out there who are misled and who are running around talking about Jarius' daughter. And it's not Jarius, it's Jairus. Say Jairus. There you go. It is Jairus. So get it right. So feel sorry for him because people mess up his name. But the, the main reason I feel sorry for Jairus is that Jesus lived in the same town where Jairus led the synagogue. Now, can you imagine? (laughs) He's the local leader in the synagogue, and he's got Jesus in his congregation. (laughs) You know, anytime you read about Jesus having opposition in the synagogue, it's probably Jairus' synagogue. It's probably Jairus' people who are giving Jesus a hard time. And his name means, and this is important, his name means God will bring light. We don't get the names of that many people in the Gospels. Apart from the disciples and a few others, you know, we hear about a woman coming, a man coming, a centurion coming, a boy being healed. We hear lots of people, but they're very careful about who they give us the names of. And therefore, we should think about what the names mean. Jairus means God will bring light. And he's a respectable guy in this town of Capernaum. He's the synagogue leader, and his little girl is sick. And she's 12 years old. We are not told the ages of many people in the Gospels. Very, very few. In fact, I'm struggling to think of any more than this. She's 12 years old, and she is dying. And Jairus has a problem. Because there's someone in the village who's got a reputation for healing people. This guy, Jesus, who the synagogue is a bit opposed to, and some of Jairus' congregation are a bit opposed to. And Jairus has to make a decision. Is he going to be proud and arrogant to the point that his daughter dies? Or is he going to go to the one who can heal her? Is, is, Is he going to allow his reputation with his people and in the village to determine what he does? Because a lot of us can be governed by what other people think. And Jairus was one of the leading figures in the town. A lot of people respected him and thought very highly of him. And now he's thinking, I need to go to this Jesus upstart whippersnapper who's creating all the trouble in the town. I need to go to him in order to have my daughter healed. I, um, I love listening to Christian songwriters who write songs that are not purely worship music. I like hearing how a Christian songwriter writes about his wife and his family and his life and allows sort of just the wisdom of his faith to then permeate through lots of different areas of life, not just worship songs. And there's a guy I've been listening to for quite a while called Brian Fallon. And I think I found my way to him because he's, he's like Bruce Springsteen Mark II. 
right? He's the understudy. He's, he's rising up. And uh, he has this, this song. And a lot of time when I'm listening to, to songs by people like this, I'll just I'll be arrested. I'll be stopped. Something will just catch me and, and I'll hear God in it. And he's a song and a line and it says, I lost most of myself pleasing everyone. And I can remember the first time I heard it a few years ago. I'm just thinking here, that's you. You are governed by trying to please other people. The approval of others. You're craving the approval of others. It's like a narcotic for me when somebody approves or commends. And I felt God just just giving me a poke and saying, you're losing who you are because you're too concerned about the approval of others and what others think. And poor Jairus, liked to please people, liked to be respectable, was worried about what people would think of him, but he was going to have to man up and actually forget about that if his daughter was going to live. And he does go and fall at Jesus' feet, which is interesting. This is the highly respected man. Do you remember last week, there was another person who fell at Jesus' feet? On the other side of the lake, the demon-possessed man. That was the last one in Luke's gospel who fell at the feet of Jesus. You've got this, you, you, you don't get a more extreme contrast than the demoniac who has possibly thousands of demons in him because they declared themselves to be legion and the leader of the synagogue. But both of them have to fall at Jesus' feet if they're going to actually encounter him and see his power. And Jesus agrees to go to to Jairus' house, but on the way, a crowd gathers. A crowd has already been gathering, and they're starting to press around Jesus, and Jairus knows time is limited. And he's desperate. His little girl, 12, at home, desperately ill, and Jesus has said he will come, and now things are being held up. (laughs) Do you ever appear that God is being held up? You're, you're desperate. You're praying for a situation and you're like, God, man, what are you doing? Dragging your heels. Get rid of the crowd and get to where you need to be. But this crowd are slowing him down. And worse than that, a woman comes and slows him down further. This woman in verse 43 has been subject to bleeding for 12 years. We don't normally get told that frequently how long somebody has suffered for in the Gospels. We just know the guy was blind and was born blind. Or we know, you know, there's some of them that we read and we know the length of their suffering, but it's not that common. But we're told this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. How old was Jairus' daughter? 12 years. There's something going on here. We'll explore it a bit more later. No one could heal her. Now, if you want more details on this and some light afternoon reading, go to Leviticus 15 and you can read about it. But here a man treads very, very carefully. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. It is menstrual bleeding and it is continuous. It is not once a month. Whatever is wrong with this woman, it is ongoing and it never stops. 12 years. And she, therefore, according to the Jewish law, is unclean. Now, let me try just briefly to explain what it means to be unclean. Because we think it means dirty. And it does not mean dirty. 
It's about what can go into the presence of God under the Jewish law. So let me, let me use a couple of examples from the Old Testament to help you get this. Moses, when he came into the presence of God, what did he take off? His shoes, his sandals, whatever he was wearing, he takes off his sandals. The reason he takes it, there's nothing wrong with his sandals. But the reason he takes them off is because God had said to Abraham, like years before, everywhere you put your foot, I'll give it to you. So the shoes and the sole of the feet and the sandals became a sign of authority over the land. But when you come into the presence of God, you take that sign of authority and you take it off and you set it to one side because God has ultimate authority over the land. Whenever David came into Jerusalem in front of the ark, when he was bringing the ark back in 2 Samuel 6, he took off his royal robes before he danced because his royal robes obviously were a sign that he was the king and he had authority. But when you're dancing in the presence of God, you take your kingly robes off. You don't go into God's presence and say, look, you're so lucky that I've come. I'm the king. You take that authority off and you lay it down in the presence of God. You get me? So it's, it's because if you brought it in, you would become unclean because you're sort of stepping onto God's territory. You're going into his presence as the king with your kingly robes on. And there's a disorder, there's a, there's a, there's a mismatch in, in, in how things are happening. And it's the same when, when this woman has her issue of blood. Or when a man, likewise, we're treading very lightly, but when a man has an emission, it is because those things are a sign of the ability to produce life. And when you go into the presence of God, who is the author and the creator of life, you don't bring those things in under the Jewish law. And that's why for a woman every month, she did not go into the presence of God when she was in this state. And she was not allowed to have contact with anyone else when she was in this state. It's not because she was dirty. It's because what was happening was a sign of her ability to produce life. And God was the ultimate giver of life. So for this few days every month, she did not go into God's presence under the Jewish law. And everyone else she touched became unclean. And everything she sat on became unclean. And her house nobody visited. And her husband was not to lie in the same bed as her. Now you think about this woman. She wasn't going through this on a monthly basis. She was going through this every single day for 12 years. So she had no husband. If she ever had one, he was gone once he realized this. Either she was single or maybe widowed or else divorced. But she was on her own because she could not have any contact with another human being. She had no children and could not have children. Literally everything she touched became unclean. She was worse than a leper. At least the lepers could all go outside the city and hang out with other lepers. She couldn't. <laughs> she couldn't go near anybody. Totally isolated. The woman is in exile. Cut off from community. Cut off from the presence of God. But she's not dirty. Right? Don't associate it with being dirty. She is not dirty. And there are loads of, of superstitions that I'm not going to read out. But there are loads of just really unpleasant superstitions that would have been associated with a woman like this. She was an outcast. And her uncleanness was, was contagious. Don't miss the tragedy of this. 
We read these stories that we are familiar with. Bleeding 12 years. No, don't miss the human tragedy of this. Sometimes when a person dies, especially if that person maybe is, is a particularly famous person, we can talk about their death in a glib manner. Don't miss the tragedy of what has happened. Don't pass comment lightly on things. This woman had a tragic, tragic, lonely life. Mark is even more emphatic. When you look at Mark and you sort of put Mark 5, literally it says about this woman that, that having a blood flow, having suffered many things under many doctors, because doctors were absolute crooks back then. And, and they just made up random stuff. Uh, again, you can read about it if you're, if you're really bored and you can read about the, the stuff that Babylonian doctors would have done to people um, in order to heal them. And it was just made up nonsense involving all sorts of wacky stuff and you suffered you went to a doctor and a doctor ripped you off and you suffered you were not made any better having suffered many things under many doctors having spent all she had having gained nothing having got worse (laughs) this is hopeless just like last week the guy living among the tombs possessed by the demons was hopeless this woman is hopeless I'm probably convinced that nothing else could help her. But she's determined to touch Jesus. Like Jairus, she knows he can help. But getting to him is a challenge. Getting to him is a challenge. Not because he is exclusive or hiding, but you're going to have to overcome some hurdles in order to actually touch Jesus. And the main hurdle, again, is what other people think. Now you think about what I've told you, how this woman is regarded in society. No one wanted to have anything to do with her. If she did walk down the main street as you're walking towards her, if you saw her, you crossed over to the other side of the road because that's what Jewish law told you to do in case you bumped into her and and she made you unclean. And she now needs to, to touch Jesus. Do we have a determination to touch Jesus? How much will we press in to actually touch Jesus? Because there's, there's very distinct sort of different groups going. There's a crowd all around him who are banging up against him and jostling with him, but they're not touching him the way she's going to touch him. She was determined. And as I was thinking about this last night, I thought about Malone and Elliot Ness. If anybody recognizes this, it's great. It's nearly an old movie now. It's been knocking about for so long. The Untouchables. Sean Connery plays Malone and he's brilliant. He's an Irish cop in Chicago. Elliot Ness is chasing down Al Capone. Cracking movie. And there's a scene in a church where, where the two of them are talking and Ness says to, or, or Malone says to Ness, what are you prepared to do? And later on in the film, there's, there's a horrific shooting where, where Malone gets shot up and his last words sputtering out of his mouth are, what are you prepared to do? And in this case, it was, what are you prepared to do to catch Al Capone? But the, the phrase sticks in my mind, what are you prepared to do to touch Jesus? What will you do to get through the crowds, to get through your reputation, to get through what others think about you and actually lay hold on Jesus? 
Dallas Willard says that a disciple is one who, intent on becoming Christ-like, rearranges his affairs to that end. Rearranges life, rearranges schedule, rearranges hobbies, rearranges pursuits, and is determined on touching Jesus and becoming like him. How determined are we to do that? And as she approaches Jesus, she's behind him. Hold on to this because these wee details are going to come together later. She come up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She didn't touch his shoulders, back. She touched the edge of his cloak. And I used to think, well, that's just because she was down on the ground, crawling in and out between sort of people's feet and just trying to get hold of him. And all she could get hold of is the bottom of his clothes. And I thought that was it. But that's not it. Think Old Testament. All right, I'll give you just a few seconds. Think the hem of a garment. The hem of a garment that somebody led hold on and did something with. The hem of a garment. And you might think of 1 Samuel 24. And you might think of King David in the cave with King Saul. And Saul has gone into the cave not knowing David's there. And David sneaks up on him. He's a mischievous character. I like him. He sneaks up on Saul and he cuts off part of the hem of his garment. And that is not just David allowing Saul to know, here, I could have killed you today. Look what I did. When David does, the hem of the garment represented authority. Authority. The way it was set up, again, you can read about it in the Old Testament, how the, how the hem of it was stitched and what was on it. It was a sign of authority. And the king's garment, the hem of the garment, was a sign of the authority of the king. And whenever David laid hold on Saul's garment and cut a piece off it, he was symbolically saying, I'm not going to kill you because you're God's anointed king. But God is going to tear the kingdom away from you and give it to me. That's what's going to happen. And whenever this woman lays hold on Jesus' garment, she is not just you know, reaching out and, and grasping him. It is a recognition of his authority. It is a recognition that he is the king. And she is going to lay hold on him. She is determined to lay hold on his kingly authority. Again, do we do this? Do we do this individually? And I think this last few weeks, on Tuesday nights, there's just a wee glimmer that we're starting to do this again. <laughs> there's a wee glimmer. To put it bluntly, on Tuesday night here, you could hardly get a word in edgeways. You know when you're at a prayer meeting and you're sort of getting yourself geared up and you're like, as soon as he stops, I'm in there. And uh, somebody else gets in before you. Unreal. But it's, you're starting to feel that momentum building and starting to feel just a, a reawakening and a coming out of the doldrums of COVID and all associated with it. And once again, corporately laying hold on the authority of the king. Loads of people were jostling around him, but only this woman laid hold on him. There is touching and there is touching. <laughs> and she laid hold on him. And I love this about my Jesus. He noticed. <laughs> he noticed. There are things sometimes when, when Jesus does something and you see his humanity so clearly. And I, as I thought about this and I pictured this, I thought he did not see her coming up behind him. He didn't flick on the God switch and put the eyes on at the back of his head and see her coming up behind him. He didn't know she was there. 
He didn't know she was sort of pushing her way through the crowd with people looking at her with contempt and disgust. How dare you, unclean woman, come in among us? Calling her names, all sorts of stuff. He didn't see it. He's going to Jairus' house. But something happened when she laid hold on him. Her faith caused something in him to be released. And he noticed And I'm like, I see the humanity of Jesus that I don't believe he knew she was there until she grabbed his garment. And then I'm reading this morning in my own reading plan about Peter needing some money to pay his tax and Jesus saying, go catch a fish. There'll be a coin in its mouth. And you're like, what? There's nothing human about that. I just can't put the two together, but I believe it. But in this moment, I see his humanity and he just like something just happened there. What's going on? He didn't know she was there. But he knew something had happened. And there's this sort of funny way exchange with the disciples. Uh, and Peter says, there's loads of people pressing against you. What are you talking about, man? Who touched me? It's like a rugby player coming up from a scrum and saying, right, who pushed me? You know, who was it? Somebody pushed me when we were down there and I want to know who it was. Everybody's pushing. And everybody's shoving Jesus around. But he shows himself in, in this interaction with this woman. He shows himself to be interruptible. He's going on mission to Jairus' house. Jairus is with him. The disciples are with him. The crowd are moving with him. And he's got an end goal in sight. And this, I don't mean this to sound derogatory, but she's a nobody in the eyes of that town. Nobody. She's not even human in the eyes of the people of that town. And he notices. He notices her. And just like the demoniac last week, no one is beyond hope. Nobody is beyond the attention of Jesus. And he is interrupted by her and he stops. The whole procession stops while Jairus' daughter is either dead or dying. And he, he, he turns and he faces this woman. And I have to say that that is an aspect of Jesus that I am not good at imitating. We talk about being Christ-like and you, you can sort of, you know, learn about Jesus and think, yes, I'm growing in Christ-likeness in some particular aspect of my life. But for me, I am not very interruptible. I am not like Jesus in this. <laughs> if I've decided what I'm doing and something comes in from one side and interrupts that, I'm not very Christ-like at that moment, okay? I really need to work on it because I'm, I'm, I'm just a bit hyper-productive and I like to say I'm going to do that, that, that and that and then something happens and one of those things doesn't get done and I'm annoyed. (laughs) I need to grow in Christ-likeness and allow myself to be interrupted without getting ticked about it. And Jesus is not content to simply move on. He turns and and he faces this woman. She now is terrified. Because what she wanted to do is go up, grab the kingly authority, hem of his garment, be healed, and then turn around and sneak back out of the crowd and away off home. That's what she wanted. But Jesus doesn't allow that. Jesus does not allow people to fade back into the nothingness where they came from. Once she has touched him, he wants to know her. And he wants to face her. He wants to look in her eyes. And he, he insists on finding out who it was. And she, she's, she's scared. She's trembling. 
and she's not trembling because she's a wee bit shy. She's been on her own for 12 years and she's not that good in crowds of people. She's not trembling about that. She's trembling because she's unclean. 12 years unclean and she's just touched somebody in public. No, no, she's just touched a man in public. No, 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 she's just touched a rabbi in public. (laughs) And she's thinking right now, what is going to happen to me? What are this crowd going to do? Because I've just broken so many rules here by laying hold on this man. She's terrified. And Jesus says to her something that he does not say to anyone else. Daughter. And you're going to see again in Isaiah why he does it. He says, daughter. This woman, I don't know what age she was, but her parents were probably dead because she didn't live that long. He said to her, daughter. And like the demoniac last week, do you remember the demoniac? He ran about naked, cutting himself among the tombs, screaming half the night, couldn't be chained, couldn't be bound. And when Jesus was done with him, he was clothed, dressed. Because when Jesus touches somebody and sets somebody free, he gives that person dignity. He covers up their shame. And just this woman who who knew nothing of family, and knew nothing of connection, Jesus says to her, daughter, he's not happy to say you're healed away, you go, I'm away to Jairus' house. He restores her dignity as a human being and as a person and as a child of God now. He says to her, your trust, your faith has healed you. That word healed also means saved. Something about her faith released something in him. I've no time for health and wealth gospels. I've no time for nonsense that if you have enough faith, you will get anything you want. But I know this, that those who have faith and lay hold on Jesus release something in Jesus. His power is released and his glory is visible. And she's told to go in peace. Hold all of these things. Go in peace. Twelve years of shame and frustration Solved that are resolved with one touch from Jesus. Twelve years. And now we've got another girl. And she's twelve years old. And she's dead. We've gone from Jesus. In the, very, in the very previous verse, Jesus has called this lady daughter. The next verse, the next thing spoken. Daughter, your faith is healed. You go in peace. Your daughter is dead. Jesus has blown it with this woman. Your daughter, Jairus, is dead, is is the message that comes to him. Hope has died. 60% of Jewish children at that time died by their mid-teens. For a child to actually live to adulthood without medicine and doctors and and all the things that we enjoy was actually quite rare. 60% of them died. And Jairus gets the message that she's dead and gets the worst advice anyone's ever got in their life. Don't bother the teacher anymore. No, 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 no. (laughs) Keep bothering Jesus. Don't let anyone ever tell you, don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't let anyone tell you, stop praying about that. Give up on that. That's not good advice. Jairus is, is, again, don't miss the tragedy. He's wrecked, absolutely wrecked by this news. And, and probably a whole mess of emotions about his daughter. Anger probably about what has happened and how Jesus has been held up. Anger with Jesus maybe. Anger surely with the woman. 
And Jesus, who has just said to the woman, your faith has healed you, now says to, to Jairus, believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. What Jesus does with people is he constantly gets their attention onto him. When you read of the death of Lazarus, Jesus goes to Martha and basically says to Martha, Martha, look at me. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whenever he meets John on the beach at Patmos, the resurrected Jesus, the glorified Jesus appears to John and he says, John, look at me. Send a message to the seven churches. Tell them, look at me. And he does it with Jairus. Just believe. Just get your focus and your faith onto me. And Jairus gets a spark of faith and the journey begins again. And when they get there, the inner three are taken in. Peter, John and James were Jesus' favorites. Just deal with it. (laughs) He had three guys out of the 12 and he just, I think again in his humanity, enjoyed them. And they got that wee bit closer. Doesn't mean he loved the others any less, but Peter, James, and John were always pulled in that little bit closer. And they're taken in as well as Jairus and his wife. But there are other people there. There are professional mourners. Back in that culture and context, whenever somebody passed away, a a group of professional mourners would have come who you paid to wail and moan and create an atmosphere where you then could authentically wail and moan and get all your emotions out. It was a strange thing. But all the people are wailing and mourning. Hold on to that. They're wailing and they're mourning. And Jesus said, stop wailing. She's not dead. She's asleep. And they laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus. Jesus. God in the flesh standing in the house and they laughed at him and people laugh at him still and people laugh at those who try to follow him and people laugh at those who plant churches and try and do all sorts of things to try to see Jesus made known if you try to follow him if you like Jairus or the lady or anyone else make that commitment to really follow him there'll be people who laugh at you let them laugh. What does Jesus do with those who are laughing? He, it's not recorded by Luke, but it's recorded by Mark and Matthew, and I love it. He puts them out, <laughs> just like the demons in the previous story. He says, get out. I don't need you here. He puts them out. They are hindering him. He says, out you go. You're holding me back. And now he's got something he can work with. Now he's got... Peter, James, and John, and he's got Jairus and his wife, and he's got faith in action. And now Jesus has something he can work with. It's a bit like the Gideon story where Gideon has this massive army and God says, too many Gideon, get rid of some of them. And he gets rid of some of them. Too many Gideon, get rid of some more. And it's whittled down to a few hundred from thousands. Sometimes people leave and sometimes Jesus puts them out. And on this occasion, he put them out. And he says to her, get up. And you remember last week or two weeks ago, he got up in the boat to still the storm. This word get up is the word of resurrection. He's going to get up. And he says to her, my child, get up. 
in Aramaic, it's Talitha Kum. It is an, a term of affection that a father would use for his little girl. Darling, time to get up. That's the way Jesus speaks to her. And her spirit returns and at once she, she stands up. She's been dead long enough and it is time for her to live again. It's the language of arising, resurrecting, arising. Jairus' name, if you remember, means God will bring light. And in Isaiah 60, and we're going to jump into Isaiah for the last few minutes. Isaiah 60 verse 1 says, arise, get up, because your light has come. Jairus is every day his name, my God will bring light. And this girl lying dead with her eyes closed in the darkness of death, light comes, God comes and says, get up. Your light has now come. So let's just wrap this all up and ask, where have we seen this before? Because Mark and Matthew and Luke and John saw many things. And John said that if all of the things that Jesus did were recorded, all the books in all the world couldn't contain it. So why did they pick these stories? You see, these, these four stories are not just, it's not just Jesus being a nice bloke out and about and using his superpower to bless people. There's more. These are parables. These are signs. Is there anywhere in the Old Testament we've seen stuff like this? Is there anywhere in the Old Testament, and sorry to go back to this you know, sort of slightly touchy topic of, of bleeding, but is there anywhere that we have seen something that might help explain the story of this woman? Yes, there is. In Isaiah 64, and you see the last half dozen chapters of Isaiah, they just cause the Gospels to explode. <laughs> Why do you keep on reading the Bible over and over again? Because stuff like this happens. And the, 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 the Old Testament explains the new and the new explains the old and it all just ties together. And you see stuff you've never seen before. And in Isaiah 64, we, we read, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now I've got to tell you what that is, unfortunately, so you get the impact of it. It means a used menstrual cloth. That's what our self-righteousness is like in the eyes of God. And the Pharisees who are no doubt in the crowd and always in the background, they're big into self-righteousness. They're big into righteous acts. And, and Jesus is reminding them that it's useless in the sight of God. Unclean are righteous acts like filthy rags. If this is not in the background of the story of this woman, I do not know what it is or what is. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So the woman herself is not dirty, but her condition, Jesus and the writers of the gospel are going to use that as a picture of the way the people are. Their self-righteous acts are useless. They need to touch him. Look what happens in the next verse of Isaiah 64, verse 7. No one calls in your name, or look, 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 look. No one strives to lay hold of you. That was the indictment against the people of God in the Old Testament. They were not striving to lay hold on God, but this woman who is bleeding who is unclean, strives to lay hold of him. You have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. And Jesus is screaming at the people, if you will lay hold on me, I will turn my face towards you. Because remember, she came up behind him. His back was to her. 
His face was not to her. He didn't see her. He had to turn his face towards her after she strove to lay hold on him. He turned and he faced her and he said, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Because behind the problem, we see the physical problem, but there's a bigger picture behind that. And the bigger picture behind that is the sin of the people. And as Jesus heals her, he has given them a lesson that they need to have their sins forgiven. They need to see his face. And in order to do so, they need to lay hold on him. It's the invitation to everyone. Everyone, no matter how unclean or unfit they feel they are, Reach out and touch him and he will turn his face and forgive. She's referred to as daughter, this woman. And daughter is, the, is, is only ever in the Old Testament used of one place and that is Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God, the people of God. Say to daughter Zion, your saviour comes, your saviour who will save you. And what does he say? You will, you will no longer be deserted. No longer outcast, no longer exiled, no longer out on your own. You'll be brought in and those names that people used of you, they will use of you no more. She represents humanity. All of us. Jesus saying, here I am. Reach out and touch me. Press through, lay hold on me and I will turn my face to you. And what is pronounced to this woman is peace. Go in peace. Again, it's not just all the best, love. Have a nice day. Go in peace because what in Isaiah 52, the prophet is looking forward to is one who will come and bring good news and proclaim peace. In the last half of Isaiah, that you get over and over again. These people in exile, outcast because of sin, a promise that peace is going to come. Restoration with God, the God who reigns. And it doesn't end there because the other daughter is involved as well. Isaiah 65, it's all clumped together and it's brilliant. In Isaiah 55, I will rejoice over Jerusalem, his daughter, and I take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Who did Jesus put out of the house? When he got to Jairus' house, the weeping and the crying, the professional mourners, the ones who were putting it on, out you go. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. And look at this. Never again will there be in it an infant, a child who lives but a few days. And the Gospels have emphasized this girl was a child and was not going to live out a full life. And, and the message is when God comes, when Jesus comes, this is what one of the signs will be. And that's why the Gospel writers record these two stories of these two women and these two 12-year times, that's why it is put together. Jesus has just been in a graveyard with a demoniac. That made him unclean. Then this woman touched him. That made him unclean. Then he went to this house where there was a corpse on a bed of a child. And that made him unclean. But no, it didn't. He did not become unclean. You see, when unclean things touch Jesus, he infects them with his cleanness and his holiness. He does not become under the Jewish law unclean by coming into contact with something unclean. No, 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 it goes the other direction. He infects them. 
his purity, his holiness, his power, his restoration goes into that which has laid hold on him. Will you lay hold on him? And I don't want you to just think here, I already have. Do it again, you know. Don't just let it be a moment years ago. Lay hold on him. Know what it is to have his face turned towards you and to restore you once again. There is no condition any human being can be in that stops them from laying hold of Jesus and feeling the king's authority touch and heal us. And likewise, we are his hands and feet on this earth. And instead of Christians hiding in holy huddles, in caves, and doing their thing, we need to be out there where we can bring his holiness into contact with that which is unclean and see it made clean. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and let's worship.